We are studying the book of Revelation this quarter, uh, and I want to just quickly review before we launch into today's study, we're going to go through uh, not the 400-level class on Revelation, but the 101 class, the basics. You know, we're not going to dissect, try, try to parse and decline every word and look at every little tree. We're going to look at the entire forest and see if we can get an overview of what God's message is for us in the book of Revelation. Uh, last Sabbath, appropriately enough, we started with Revelation chapter 1, and uh, our scope of study was Revelation 1 through 3. In Revelation chapter 1, we saw the introduction to this great book, and it clearly says right on the very first opening sentence, the very first words, that this is not a book of terrors or the book of beasts, but it's a revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. In fact, that's central. It's not a revelation of what. It's a revelation of who Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of this book. And we see all throughout the introduction that it's, the G- it's Jesus who is exalted, Jesus who speaks to the seven churches, as we studied last time. And one of the interesting things we noted as we saw that introduction and those seven churches, the messages to the, that Jesus had to the seven churches, in fact, let's just look at it in chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, In verse 19, well, we'll start with verse 18. Jesus identifies himself as the speaker, and there's only one who fits these terms. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. And of course, there's only one being in the universe who can make that claim. I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore, and that's Jesus Christ. Then he says, verse 19, write the things which you have seen the things which are, and the things that will take place after this. And he starts, notice he starts with things that are in the present tense to the author's situation, his circumstance, but includes things to come that are going to happen in the future. This is present condition and future prophecy. And then he unfolds the letter to the seven churches. And of course, the seven churches were literal churches in Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, all the way through Thyatira, Sardis, and all the way to Philadelphia and Laodicea. And they were outlined in a sequence, and the message, same message, went from one to the next, to the next, to the next, and it outlines a sequence. Okay? So again, there are literal churches that were existing in his day, but the message was supposed to go from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, all the way around to Laodicea which outlines, apparently according to Christ, not only things that are, but things which will take place after this. This is a prophecy of things to come. Now, in previous times we have studied the book of Daniel that corresponds to the book of Revelation, these two great apocalyptic books of the Bible, one in the Old Testament, Daniel, and one that closes out the New Testament, the book of Revelation. The book of Daniel does the same thing that the book of Revelation does because I believe they're inspired from the same source. Okay? And that is that starts with the prophet's time and looks to the future going forward. Okay? For instance, in Daniel chapter 2, if you recall, there was Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the image, and it began with the head of gold, and Daniel clearly identified, you, O king, are that head of gold. This prophecy starts right now in this time, but it goes forward to the next kingdom and the next kingdom in a sequence, and it concludes with the establishing of God's eternal kingdom with the coming of Jesus Christ. You see the same thing in the book of Revelation, that it starts in the prophet's time, and it moves forward sequentially, chronologically, from one phase to the next to the next to the next, until the coming and establishment of Jesus Christ's eternal kingdom. 
a very simple historical unfolding of what from the prophet's time would be future events, most of which from our perspective has already occurred, praise the Lord, but there are still some future events to go, and Revelation outlines those. So we want to lay that groundwork as we move into our next phase of study that we're going to see the same process unfolding. But before we study our our scripture today, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this book of Revelation that reveals Jesus Christ. So as we look forward to his coming, yes, let us study these prophecies, which many of which for our time now have been fulfilled, but the ones that have yet to be fulfilled help us to keep our eyes squarely on the centerpiece of this book, Jesus Christ and him alone, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So now we turn our attention to Revelation chapter 4. So we covered chapters 1, 2, and 3 in our previous message, and Revelation chapter 4 starts again. Now, as you're finding Revelation 4, let's add something to our picture. Now, again, if you recall, Daniel chapter 2 had the image, the statue, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the second coming of Jesus. It went one, two, three, right through the statue, and the coming of Jesus was the end. Then in Daniel chapter 7, and we're still in Revelation 4 with our fingers, we're just in our minds going to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 reiterates the same thing, the same sequence of events that Daniel 2 did, right? Except in this time, instead of using body parts, it talks about beasts, right? I saw a lion, and then a bear, and then a leopard, and then a terrible beast. But it starts to add some detail towards the end that was not mentioned in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 is the most basic, literally skeleton outline. Head to toes, the end. No breaks, no pauses, no, oh, by the way, let's look at this. None of that. Just straight through. Daniel chapter 7 goes right through, but it pauses and it gives further detail on scenes that were not illuminated in chapter 2. I bring all that up because we're going to see the same pattern emerge in Revelation. Revelation 1 through 3 outlines the introduction and the messages to the seven churches that just go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's it. No interruptions, no pauses, no further explanation. But now we get to Daniel chapter, I mean, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and as we move through these next sets of sevens, we see the same thing we saw in Daniel, that it's going to cover the same territory, but towards the end it's going to expand and give more detail that wasn't given at the beginning. Are we clear so far? All right, if you're already lost, I'm sorry. <laughs> but hopefully that's basic, and now we'll go forward. Revelation chapter 4. After these things, John writes, and of course the things that he's talking about is the vision of the seven churches, the messages he was supposed to give to them. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open, where? In heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place when? After this. Right, it's going to, again, the same thing we saw in Daniel chapter 1. It starts in the prophet's time and then goes forward. There's some things that now he says, I'm going to show you that will take place after this. So we're starting here, and then we're going to be showing you the future. By the way, a great little trivial thing, a little idea you have to keep in the back of your mind, a rule of thumb. If ever the heavens open up and a voice says to you, come up here, go. Right? John saw some marvelous things, and I hope to live in the days when we're going to see heaven open up and Jesus says, come up here, and I'm going to ready to go. Amen? Okay? So John understands what to do. He doesn't run and hide. He goes through, and it says in verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit, 
and behold, a throne set in heaven. Now, if you want to, if you had one of those little clickers, you can mark the line. See how many times you see the word throne from here on out. Okay, notice this. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Was the throne empty or occupied? It was occupied by one with a capital O. And there's only one person who sits on God the Father's throne. That's God the Father. And we're going to see that that's who this is as we move forward. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne and uh, an appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps with fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven what? Spirits of God. Okay? Seven spirits of God. And again, as we mentioned last Sabbath, you will never find reference to the Holy Spirit exactly, but you will find the seven spirits, which of course is a representation, a symbolic language for the Holy Spirit, and we'll know that as we continue on. But here we have the Father is sitting on the throne, and the Spirit is before the throne, and it goes on in verse 6, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like the flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Okay. Now, we can, if you would like to, this is one of those handy ways we can demonstrate that this is God the Father. If you put your finger there and go back to Revelation chapter 1, John writes his letters to the seven churches on behalf of God. And it breaks down each member of the Godhead, starting with verse 4 of Revelation chapter 1. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. See what I'm saying? This is God the Father, then there's the Holy Spirit, and there's that final one, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So all three members of the Godhead were already mentioned in the book of Revelation. Now in Revelation 4, it revisits them, yet it shows only the Father sitting on the throne, the Spirit before the throne, but there's no mention of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 4. In fact, it, we're almost done as it continues. They're praising God the Father, who is and was and is to come. He's the eternal being, Right? Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their thrones before, cast their crowns before the throne saying, and this is going to be key, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for what reason? For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Notice they're praising God the Father for two things here in Revelation chapter 4. The first thing is his eternal nature. He was and he is and is to come. In contrast to the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the angel hosts are all represented. He is the eternal being in their midst who was and is and is to come. And the 24 elders add to that, 
you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power for you have, what's that word? Created all things. Now, you might pause and say, wait, wait, wait. I thought Jesus Christ was the creator. But notice the qualifier it says, you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. It was the will of the Father that they be created, but who was the agent of creation? Jesus Christ, right? So they're praising the Father for being eternal in nature, for willing the creation to come into existence, and then they stop. No mention of Jesus in Revelation chapter 4. But notice that Revelation 5 just continues to flow as though it's one unit. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, we've already looked at the messages to the seven churches, so you should already be looking, oh, here's another set of sevens, right? So you have a scroll, a singular scroll, with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is, and what's that word? Well, look at verse 4, chapter 4, verse 11. Speaking of God the Father, the one in whose hand the scroll is sitting, right? They proclaim him, you are worthy. And then an angel comes up in chapter 5 and verse three, uh, 2 and asks the question, who is worthy? Well, isn't this a rhetor- Shouldn't it just be, well, God the Father is worthy? I mean, he sits on the throne. He can create all things. He lives forever and ever. Surely he can open any book he wants to open, right? But look at verse 2 as it unfolds. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And verse 3 says, and how many? No one. Including the one sitting on the throne. Is not, now, it sounds like blasphemy to say, but the one sitting on the throne is not worthy. That's careful now. What do we mean? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Now, I'll pause right here. Nowhere in the book of Revelation does it precisely outline what's on the scroll. I mean, we're about to see in the preceding chapters, they're going to open each seal. By the way, there is someone who can open the seals, praise the Lord. They're going to open each seal, and each seal has something in it. You see a thing and a thing but it never actually shows you what's on the scroll. But John seems to understand the gravity of this, the significance of this scroll, and the fact that if it can't be opened, apparently this is the end of all things. He's completely undone. Look at his response in verse 4. So I wept much. And this is paltry language here. The English doesn't translate it well. This is not like, and I sniffled. Right? And I was sad for the afternoon. No, no, no. This is weeping, this is moaning, this is wailing, this is like just, he's completely unraveled by this. The fact that no one can open this throne, uh, the, the scroll that's in the Father's hand. So I wept much because no one was found, what? Worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But, verse 5 says, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, and what's another word for behold? Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. What's another word for prevailed? He has won. He's been victorious. He's conquered, right? 
has prevailed to do what? To open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So there is one who is worthy because he has prevailed. What does it mean? Well, let's go to verse 6. And I looked, because he was told to look, right? And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a what? Lamb, as though it had been, past tense, slain. As though it had been slain. Is this Jesus? Obviously, by the way, I don't want to give anything away, but the Lamb is Jesus Christ, yes? 29 times in the book of Revelation, the word Lamb is used. In every single one of them, it refers to Jesus Christ. As a lamb, and what particular condition is it in now? As though it had been slain, right? As though it, that was Jesus' identifier back in Revelation chapter 1. I'm the one who was dead, and now I'm alive forevermore. Here, the lamb, as though it had been slain, it has vic- been victorious in its mission on earth, and now it has returned to heaven as though it had been slain. By the way, if something has gone through a, a, a painful experience, if something has been slain, it would have scars, right? Something you could be able to look at and say, aha, there's evidence of your claim. And notice this also, and having seven horns and seven eyes, oh, I'll never understand what that means. Well, it tells you, just keep reading. Which are the seven spirits of God, but what is their position now? Notice they're no longer standing before the throne. When Jesus comes into the picture, the Holy Spirit is sent out where? Into all the earth. Keep that in mind. Then he, that is the lamb, came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Notice he doesn't ask for the, throne, for the scroll. He comes and take it, takes it like it's his like he has a right to pick it up and do whatever he wants with it. Now that's interesting. And now notice the scene changes. Instead of all shifting just only around God the Father, the Lamb is included in that central figure. And notice it says here in verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And notice those are the same two groups who had fallen down before the, the throne earlier, right? Now they're falling down before the Lamb each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a what kind of song? A new song. Something is different now. Notice what they say. You are, what's that word? Worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Does it say, for you are higher exalted than God the Father? No, because you're more pure and holy than God the Father. Is that it? No. It has nothing to do with inherent godness or goodness. Jesus Christ simply did something that the Father had not done. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Powerful thought. The reason that Jesus Christ can open this scroll and loose its seven seals is not because he's more highly exalted than God the Father or more of inherent value. It's because he did something that is unique in all the universe. He was God who became man, became subject to death, gave himself as a sacrifice on the cross, was victorious over Satan, and has ascended into heaven with the scars to prove that he was the lamb who was slain. And he comes back in, 
And now he's able to take this scroll. The implication being, by the way, if Jesus had not been victorious, if he had not prevailed, what condition would that scroll stay in? Sealed. Whatever it is, whatever is in this book, is con- it's opening, it's revealing, it's, it's unfolding, is contingent on Jesus shedding his blood. Okay? The only thing that makes this process go, if there was no Jesus in this, the book of Revelation, would there be a scroll and it's sealed, the end. That's where the book would stop. Right? Which, by the way, gives a strong implication that whatever's in that seal, scrolled up in that, is something that is intended to go forward, but can only happen contingent on the blood of Jesus being shed and been victorious over Satan. Okay? So this is some sort of contract, some sort of written document that can only be unfolded, that can only go forward if Jesus Christ is victorious over Satan. Does that make sense so far? Now what's interesting is then it starts to open each seal and you start to see the same pattern as you saw in the churches. You see one and then another, and then another walking through history. Again, those are the, that's the only inference we get from the book of Revelation as to what's contained in the scroll. It seems to be whatever going, everything going forward wouldn't have happened if that scroll were left sealed. Handily enough, we have the added insight of the spirit of prophecy. And in this one place, there's one place where she specifically mentions what's written on the scroll. Would you like to hear it? Good, good, good. If you said no, I I would be so discouraged, like, no, just move on. Okay? You'll find it in three different places. The one I'll be reading from is Manuscript Release, Volume 9, page 7. Commenting on this particular passage in Revelation, she writes, There in his open hand lay the book. The role of the history of God's providences the prophetic history of nations and the church. Herein was contained the divine utterances, his authority, his commandments, his laws, the whole symbolic counsel of the eternal, and the history of all ruling powers in the nations. In symbolic language was contained in that role the influence of every nation, tongue, and people, from the beginning of earth's history to its close. Okay? It's the entire plan of redemption. And it hinges on one thing. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing can go forward. If he fails at the cross, the roll stays sealed. But now that he comes back in victorious, He's able to, worthy, he's worthy to take the throne with his father. He's worthy to open those scrolls. And you'll see the sign and seal that that Jesus has been delivered is the sending out of the Holy Spirit who is sent out into all the earth. We can find, by the way, the earthly parallel to this. Back up, if you would, to Acts Acts chapter 2. Not long ago, we had a message on this entitled The Other Side of Pentecost. It's on our website if you'd like to look it up. But just briefly, you notice that Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the earth. You notice the burden of Peter's message was not explaining the nature and role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was simply the sign and seal that Jesus was now on the throne in heaven. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, 
When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly they came a sound from where? From heaven, as of a mighty rushing wind. By the way, had Jesus said that the Spirit was like a wind? Absolutely. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with whom? The Holy Spirit. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Spirit gives them the the ability to preach a message. And of course, what's the burden of that message? Let's go to the end of Acts chapter 2. Go to verse 32, if you would. Peter now, standing up with his ability to communicate, divinely given by the Lord himself through the gift of the Holy Spirit, preaches a message not about the Holy Spirit, but about Jesus Christ. Verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Interestingly enough, this was close enough in time. It was only 50 days since Jesus is resurrected, since that weekend when he was crucified. So the same people were in town then that had actually done the deed just a month and a half before. Okay, And when he says we are all witnesses, he means those who were you know, cowardly but still on his side and you who crucified him. All of us were there. By the way, interestingly enough, all the apostles were there, of course, except for Judas, yes? Which would include the apostle John who would later write the book of Revelation from the island of Patmos. And I'm guessing when he read, when he was shown Revelation 4 and 5, he realized what I'm being shown is the heavenly side of what I experienced back in Acts chapter 2. John, as far as I know, is the only person who saw both sides of Pentecost, the earthly side and the heavenly side. Anyway, Peter stands up preaching this message. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and notice this, and having received from the Father the promise of what? The Holy Spirit. He has poured out this which you now see and hear. Which reminds you of Revelation chapter 5 when Jesus receives the scroll and the Holy Spirit is sent out into all the earth. Jesus does the sending, the Father gives the gift, the the Son sends out the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, For David, this is Peter going back to the Old Testament, For David did not ascend into heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord. So it's interesting, they can have two lords. That's okay, because we have one God in three persons, right? And the Lord, the God the Father, said to my Lord, Jesus Christ, Sit at my right hand. So notice that Peter is saying this prophecy of David is fulfilled today at the day of Pentecost. Jesus Christ is ascended to the Father and he is now sitting at the right hand as the prophets had told. But notice this, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Notice this, when Jesus is down in Revelation chapter 5, have his enemies been made his footstool yet? No. He's just, this is his initial sitting down as the kingdom, as, as the king of the kingdom of grace, as we're going to see. He's, and this is his role as a priest in the holy place. Okay. But there's still a process to go forward, and at the final analysis, at the end time, then his enemies will be put under his feet. Okay? Therefore, verse 36, what's the punchline of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, 
both Lord and Christ. This is the earthly side of what Revelation 4 and 5 shows us from the heavenly perspective. So we go back to the book of Revelation. Again, I don't want it to be, I don't want to miss it at all. Revelation 4 and 5 is the day of Pentecost from heaven's perspective. And Acts chapter 2 just simply records it from earth's perspective. It's the same event, but it gives us an interesting starting point. Notice in Revelation chapter 1, he starts with those seven churches that are, and it outlines things that are to come. Now he starts with something that happened in the prophet's time, the day of Pentecost, and he's going to move forward with the unsealing of these seven seals. Okay? Revelation chapter 6 then. Notice in verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he sat on it, had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And again, I'm not going to take the time to go through each detail of these seven seals, but what you see here, I want you to notice a pattern. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, it gives us the first seal. Then, immediately, chapter, three, uh, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, gives us the second seal. Then, verses 5 through 6, gives us the third seal. Verses 7 through 8, give us the fourth seal. Verses 9 through 11, give us the fifth seal. Verses 12 through 17, gives us the sixth seal. Now, just out of curiosity, if we've gone unencumbered from one to two to three to four to five to six, what do you expect to come next? Seven. In fact, that's what was already laid down in Revelation 1 through 3, the letters to the seven churches. After the introduction, one, two, and three goes church one, church two, church three, church four, church five, church six, church seven. No break. But here we go, one, two, three, four, five, six seals, and then, er, that it ends chapter six, and we have some extra information inserted between the sixth and the seventh seal that was not mentioned in the seven churches. But we should expect this having studied the book of Daniel. That you repeat the same sequence, and as it gets closer to the end time, it starts to give more and more detailed information. Okay? And what's the information given here? Well, it takes a pause, and notice... By the way, by the time we get to uh, the sixth seal, things are getting closer and closer and closer to the coming of Jesus. Right? Notice this. Let's, in fact, let's, go to, let's, let's read the entire sixth seal. No problem. Verse 12. I looked, uh, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, and as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded up as a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the whom? The Lamb. It's coming closer and closer to the coming of Jesus. And look at their question that ends chapter 6. This is fascinating. And they cry out, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able, what? They look at this and say, the whole earth is undone. Who can possibly stand before this whole, by the way, the wrath of a lamb? 
<laughs> I mean, lambs are at petting zoos, right? Notice he's not in the form of a lion. He's the lamb. It's the lamb likeness represents his purity, his holiness, his perfection. And they're saying, compared to that, who can stand? Which is an interesting thing. It ends with this question. Chapter 6 ends with this question. The sixth seal ends with this question. Who can stand? And as if to answer the question, there's a, well, that's interesting. Let's take a moment, pause here in the sequence of seven, pause right here, and let's address who can stand. And it introduces us to a group of people known as the 144,000. And it introduces the 144,000. Let's just go to chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So remember, things were, gra- were getting uh, uh, crescendoing towards a point of destruction. But there's a pause. Wait, 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 wait. Don't unleash yet. We need to seal the servants of our God in the forehead. And what you have is the sealing of God's people right here at the close of time. And of course, verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And then he goes on to describe this great multitude that he sees in verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. White robes represent the purity of God. Palm branches, the victory. And what are they crying out? Verse 10, with a loud voice saying, what, what belongs to our God? Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to whom? The Lamb. By the way, is it clear that the Lamb is the centerpiece of the book of Revelation? He's coming back, and he keeps coming back. And, he's coming back. and those who in the sixth seal are about to say, who can possibly stand? They're crying off the mountains to fall on them. The answer is given. There are some who can stand. I've sealed them. I've protected them. I've kept them, and they are mine. Salvation belongs to them. Then, then we go to chapter 8 and verse 1, and then we find and he opened the what number? Seventh seal. And there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, again, we could, we could have an entire message. What does that silence in heaven mean? By the way, who's the great multitude? And what's the relationship to 144,000? And how's the sealing of God going? We could just start wandering off and trying to dissect every tree, but I'm going to pan out and see the forest. Right? I want you to notice the sequence. That it goes, when it comes to the seals, one, two, three, four, five, six. Then it cuts away and gives a picture of the 144,000, the great multitude, who will be redeemed. And then it says, and then the seventh seal is opened. And there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. In in the first sequence of sevens, the seven churches, there's no interruption. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, that's it. Now, at the seals, you see one, two, three, four, five, six, pause. And a description of the 144,000, then the seventh seal is opened. Then there's one more set of sevens, the seven trumpets. Verse 2 says of chapter 8, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunders, lightnings, and earthquakes. 
So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So all the seven angels are lining up. They're about to sound their trumpets, and now their sequence of seven begins. And then you notice the same thing happens. Verse, verse 7 is the first trumpet. Verse 8 and 9 is the second trumpet. Verse 10 and 11, the third trumpet. Verses 12 through 14, uh, 12 through 13, I'm sorry, the fourth trumpet. Then it goes, moves on into chapter 9. Then you have the fifth trumpet up to verse 12. Then at verse 13, you have the sixth trumpet. So you see the same thing. One, two, three, four, five, six, right in a row, but then at six, it says, now before we get to seven, which is always the coming of Jesus, because all these sevens have the same ending point. But just as it's getting close to the coming of Jesus, it says, now let's pause and give some extra information about end-time events. And it gives us chapter 10, where John sees an angel with a scroll, and he's told to eat the scroll. What in the world does that mean? Well, you've got to come back next Sabbath. Next Sabbath will be the burden of our message, Revelation chapter 10. And then he also gives the message of Revelation chapter 11 inside of this parentheses between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. You have Revelation 10, and then you have the two witnesses described in Revelation chapter 11, which will be our message the following Sabbath. But after those two side ventures, it comes back now in chapter 11, verse 15. And notice how the conclusion of the seven trumpets is recorded. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their throne, uh, sat before God on their thrones, fell on their faces, and worshiped God. By the way, this sounds very much like Revelation 4 and 5. Here in Revelation 5, Jesus is enthroned for the first time in the holy place ministry as king of grace, the kingdom of grace. Now, at the end of the seven trumpets, the end of the seven seals, at the culmination of earth's history, he's once again inaugurated as king, but not just the kingdom of grace, but the kingdom of glory, the whole thing, the kingdom itself. Saying, verse 17, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be what? Judged. So this transitions to a work of judgment, right? And that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So there's going to be a separating of the two classes. There's going to be the lost and the redeemed, the punished and the reward, and now it is the time of this judgment. Thus, it only makes sense as it closes in verse 19 that we read, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. Now, isn't that what John saw? I saw a door standing open in heaven, way back in Revelation 4 and 5. But he wasn't going into the most holy place. He was going into the holy place. But now we see a transition. The temple of God was open in heaven, and how far in can he see now? And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. Where is the ark of the covenant? In the most holy place. It's a time of judgment in the most holy place at the end of earth's history here. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. Fascinatingly enough, the, the, the 
Revelation 4 and 5 gives us the picture of the throne room when Christ comes from the earth, victorious over Satan, slain from the wounds of Calvary, and he is seated at the right hand of his Father on his throne in heaven. At the end of the historical sequence that follows, you see Jesus now entering another room, the most holy place, to receive his kingdom and determine reward and punishment. You see an allusion to the most holy place ministry of Jesus Christ, which, of course, when he's concluded, he'll come to physically take those of us who are his own to return with him, that his promise might be fulfilled, that where I am, you may be also. So I want to underline this again. We're not dissecting every church, every trumpet, uh, seal and every trumpet, but I want you to see the sequence. That each one begins in the time of the prophet and goes forward sequentially, chronologically, to the close at Jesus' kingdom. You see that unbroken in the seven churches. In the seven seals, you go one, two, three, four, five, six, pause in a description of the 144,000, and then it's shown the end, and in the seven trumpets, it goes one, two, three, four, five, six, pause, and it gives us a picture of chapter 10 and 11, which we'll study in our next weeks, and concludes with this enthronement of Jesus once again. It begins and it ends with Jesus on the throne, Just one is in the holy place, the other is in the most holy place. We're following the Lamb wherever he goes. Which, by the way, is one of the identifying marks of the 144,000. That those are these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, I want to underline this fact that the deeper and the deeper that we get into Revelation, I know sometimes you might think, well, he's mentioned in the first verse, of course, the revelation of Jesus Christ, but from then on, it's all about beasts. No, it's not. Jesus is the living heartbeat of the book of Revelation. Everything begins with him. Everything is guided by him, and it concludes with him. Jesus is truly the center of the book of Revelation. And though it may seem otherwise in our perspective, because you know that we live along this historical spectrum somewhere, Praise God, we're not at the apostolic church anymore. And we're not in the dark ages. We're, not, we're way down here. I believe we're living in that time of judgment that Jesus had talked, that is mentioned here in the book of Revelation, that the next thing to happen are those end-time events and Jesus will return soon. And from our perspective, it can seem dark and it can seem scary and it can seem intimidating. Oh, the world is falling apart. But friends, I'm telling you, Jesus is still on the throne. And when he's done with his work, he's going to come and return and take us home so that where he is, we may be also. Jesus is the center of revelation. He's the author and he's the finisher of our faith. And my pleading with you is to look to Jesus and see your king who's on the throne even now. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.